I've been thinking a lot recently how we are people who have expectations. Whether conscious of it or not, we have ideas about how things ought to be. I believe, honestly, that more conflict happens interpersonally due to either miscommunicated expectations or unnamed expectations. Just think about it in your own life. Maybe even when you walked in here today, we have ideas about who should fill roles, right? When someone gets up front, you're like, well, they got to be this certain way, right? We have an idea of what their personality ought to be, how they should carry themselves. We do this for leaders, politicians, professional athletes. In our culture, we have lists, whether explicitly or unwritten, of what a person needs to be like to be successful for their task. But God loves to shake up these expectations. We put so much emphasis on our power as humans, and God has a way of reminding us that we are rather powerless. God loves to shake the expectations, expectations specifically of his people and bring them to a deeper understanding of him and to a greater worship of himself and not ourselves. So today, we're going to see two individuals that God used during the time of Judges to deliver his people, and we're going to see how God through God works through meeting both our expectations in people, and also he blows away what we think he ought to be doing. So he alone is glorified. So if you'll please stand with me as we read from God's word. We're going to be reading Judges 3, 7 through 30 today. That's on page 202 of the Bibles in your rows. And if you don't have a Bible today, we have some out at the connection table we'd love to give you. Just go by there on your way out, and uh, someone will be there to do that. Judges 3, 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, And he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Kishan Rishathaim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjaminite, and a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. 
And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went into the porch and closed, went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he was relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed, but when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we're thankful uh, for this day, Father, that we're able to come together uh, and worship you, Lord, as, uh, as followers of Jesus. Um, I just pray that you would help us to uh, see your glory through all of this, Lord, and how you work uh, through many different people. Um, and your sovereign plan is to bring about deliverance. Uh, I just ask that you would move in the hearts of everyone here, uh, speak through your Holy Spirit, um, and just penetrate the hearts of those who, um, who don't know you yet, Lord, and those who do, I just pray that they would come to a deeper knowledge of you, Lord. And I just pray that uh, you would bless this time, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. You can have a seat. So, quite a text we have today. Uh, when I was told I was going to get this, I was like, man, you've got to be kidding me. Because I do not know what in the world I'm going to do with Othniel and Ehud. But I do believe that uh, there's a lot of good stuff in here. So, um, we're going to work through how God used Othniel uh, and how he used Ehud, um, and we're going to see ultimately that uh, our ultimate deliverer is Christ. So last week we started this series on judges, um, and just to give a quick recap, we find ourselves at the time when the Israelites have entered the promised land. Uh, If you know anything about biblical history, uh, the Israelites were saved from captivity in Israel, or excuse me, in Egypt, and they consistently were grumbling, you know, against the Lord, and they were, they were not obeying his commandments. And so God kept them out of the promised land for many years. Then eventually Joshua came after Moses, and he led them into the promised land. But after the death of Joshua, we read that there arose a new generation who did not know the Lord or what he had done for Israel. They failed to follow the Lord and obey him completely. As we read in Judges 2, 1 through 2, it says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bachim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt 
and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So they failed to keep the covenant with God, and now God has allowed the remaining people to be thorns in their side, and we read that the gods of these people will be snares to the Israelites. But despite their unfaithfulness, God is gracious, and he raises up judges. And we get this pattern of behavior that we'll notice throughout the rest of this book, where the people rebel, God is angry, and he gives them over to oppression. The people cry out, and a judge is provided by God, and he uses that person to bring deliverance from the oppression. Then there's peace again until the judge dies, and it starts all over. So the people go after idols, they cry out after they're oppressed, God raises up a deliverer, delivers them, that deliverer dies, and the cycle starts over. We see that even the end of Judges does not change from this cycle. The last verse of the book says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's not hard to notice this type of pattern even in our own lives. And it's important that as we go through this book, we don't just see that the Israelites were like this, but that we are like this. We live in a world where we are encouraged to do what's right in our own eyes. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. Live your truth. And the reality is that living in this way ultimately is going to lead to problems and pain and a sense of being unfulfilled, even when the immediate actions feel so right and so good and so comfortable. So today we're going to unpack this account of Othniel and Ehud and make some significant observations uh, that we need to make along the way as we learn about them. So we see that the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, They served the Baals and the Asheroth. It's easy here to glance over the word forgot and just move on. But the scriptures in the Bible, we have great emphasis on the differences between forgetting and remembering. We see examples of God, um, of, of of people asking God to remember his mercy and his love and to forget the sins of his people, and to act on his character of loving kindness. To say that the Israelites forgot mean that they no longer were connecting the knowledge that they had in their head to their actual heart. Absolutely still an issue today. I notice this in my life for sure. I ironically forget the concept of forgetfulness. I know what God says and what he wants, I know what Jesus Christ did for me. I know the gospel, but somehow that just stays up here and it doesn't really connect. It doesn't really translate into my heart of hearts and grip me. I know I've been forgiven, but I don't forgive. I know my deepest satisfaction is in Christ, and yet I still look for fulfillment in other places, and it always leaves me worse off. A brief physical example of me forgetting and failing to connect my head knowledge to my heart, is running. 
I always get in a running kick, like the actual sport of running. I'm like, it's spring, I'm excited, I want to get outside. So I sign up for all of these races, and then the summer comes, and I don't train very much, and I'm like, "Ah, I don't know about this. But then I look, and two weeks away on my calendar, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to run. I have to run this half marathon. That was me yesterday. (laughs) I promise you. I enter this race, Jake ran the race too, and we really didn't train very much. And in the middle of the race, I'm just questioning. I'm like, man, what in the world did I do this for? It's freezing. It's slippery. I've fallen. My calves are tight. I've been out here for two hours. What in the world am I doing? So somehow, though, I'll finish the race. And I'm like, I'm never doing that again. Winter happens. Next spring, chances are, I'll be like, who wants to run? And I know in my head that my relationship with running is not great, but I do it anyways. I do the same thing spiritually. I know that's just kind of a silly example, but I think you understand what I'm getting at. I am forgetful, like the Israelites, because I get busy in life. That becomes my excuse. My physical needs are met, so I must be okay, and I just go about my business as usual. And I fail to let the truths that I know about God really grip me. I fail, like the psalmist says in Psalm 34, to taste and see that the Lord is good. I like the analogy that Tim Keller uses in his commentary on Judges. He says, he gives us this picture that our hearts are like a bucket of cold water. You set it outside, or a bucket of water on a cold day, you set it outside and it starts to freeze over. And it will freeze over unless we regularly smash that ice that starts forming. We smash that ice by remembering. Remembering what God did. Not just trying harder, but remembering the deliverance that God has brought us and living in the light of that. But we see here that the Israelites forgot. And God allowed them, God allowed them to be delivered into the hand of Kushan Rishathaim. I hope I'm saying that right. He's the king of Mesopotamia, and he's not just an insignificant king. He's not like the other people that will raise up, be raised up against the Israelites that we'll see in Judges. This guy is not just the leader of one tribe or clan. He is the king of Mesopotamia. They covered a vast territory. And we read that the people of Israel served him for eight years, but they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer. And this man is Othniel. He's the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, it says. And this is the kind of guy that you would want to be your deliverer. This is the guy that Israel would expect to be raised up to deliver them from their enemy. He's from the tribe of Judah. You know, Judah is a very prestigious tribe in Israel. And he is a hero, as we read back in Judges 1. He was the one who conquered Kiriath-Sephir and gained land for Israel. In the scheme of who we would want as humans to choose for us to be our leader, this is the man. It's like LeBron James on on the basketball team or whatever other analogy you can come up with. That's who you want. And we read in verse 10, though, that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Kushan Rishathaim into his hand. 
and his hand prevailed. So the land had rest for 40 years. So we see that God used somebody that was completely likely, completely expected, but then he dies. And what happens next? The cycle starts all over again. Verse 12 says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthens Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. He gathers some other people groups around him at the time, the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and they defeat Israel and they take over the city of Palms. The city of Palms is Jericho. And if you remember, uh, in the book of Joshua, Jericho is where the Israelites march around that city and the walls come tumbling down. There's a Veggie Tales about it. Uh, if you remember that, that's, they do a decent job of showing what that's about. But anyways, Eglon comes into power. And you will notice, as we go through this book of Judges, the cycle that takes place with Othniel is the most clean And straightforward when he's the judge. He's the only judge whose life is recounted without any specific flaws. After him, the cycles just get worse. The judges that are raised up seem to have some flaws that are pointed out. And that's why we describe this cycle as not just some circular pattern, but as a downward spiral. Because every time the Lord delivers Israel, the people forget and things seem to get worse. So we read here that they served Eglon for 18 years. The people cry out, and the Lord raises up Ehud, the son of Gera, who was a Benjaminite. He also was a left-handed man. If you look up the references in the Bible that are talking about the right hand, they are all pretty positive. We read that God swears by his right hand. He has pleasures by his right hand. His chosen one, Jesus, sits at his right hand hand. So most people in this time were right-handed, and it represented power and ability. Even as late as like 80 years ago in our own culture, we thought that being right-handed was correct. I remember stories of like my grandma being forced to write with her right hand, and it bums me out because I'm a lefty. Are there any other lefties in here? A lot of us. Well, kind of. But I guess... At this time, lefties were not as good as right-handers because back then it usually was considered inferior. Typically, those who either were paralyzed or maybe had some sort of disability, they were, they were prohibited from using their right hand and forced to use their left. This was Ehud. Something prohibited him from using his right hand, so he's a lefty. We also read that he is a Benjaminite. The Benjaminites, unlike Judah, not the prized tribe of Israel. In fact, the book of Judges ends with a civil war between Israel and the tribe of Benjamin for something that happened within that tribe. The author of Judges goes way out of their way, not way out, they go out of their way to say, hey, look, Ehud is not the likely candidate for someone who I would raise up to be a deliverer. But in God's sovereign plan, he decides to use Ehud. And it's not in a way that I would consider very expected. So Ehud is both unlikely to be a judge, and he's used in an unexpected way. Now this story, I'm going to refrain and stray from the softball tosses it gives me at these jokes when you're reading it. I'm going to steer clear because, you know what, when I was looking at it, I was like, man, 
what? This Eglon guy gets stabbed with a sword and yada, yada, yada. But that's what happened, right? So we see that he, Ehud goes in, he takes a double-edged sword, places it on his right thigh, and they're giving a tribute to this king. The author does not paint Eglon in a very kind light. He kind of points out that this guy's not the sharpest tool in the shed. And Ehud is clearly crafty, and he has a secret message. He says, he goes, king, I got a secret message for you. So right here, common sense tells anybody, you don't stay one-on-one with your enemy. But the attendants are sent outside, and we read what happens. Now the servants come back, and they're embarrassed. So Ehud gets away. The servants are embarrassed because they're like, man, I'm not... It's, they, they undoubtedly smelled what was happening, and they were probably like, I'm not going to barge in on the king. We've all been there, either on the receiving side of that or on the other side, where we kick in the door and like, oh my gosh. The, that doesn't, back in those days, you get killed for that. So they wait and wait, and Ehud escapes. He then goes back and gathers the people of Israel. And they take advantage of this situation and they go down and they subdue the Moabites. And this whole account, it kind of leaves you with a little bit of like a weird feeling. You're like, man, you mean to tell me that God works like in that way? It's not like Othniel. We see that the chosen agent of God is not just unlikely, but he is used in an unlikely way. We're reminded that God does not work in the ways that we consider normal or through the people that we consider to be the right people. And in fact, I believe Ehud teaches us more about how God saves his people than Othniel does. God loves to use means that just flip all of our preconceived notions on their head. He loves to work through the way that the, he loves to work through ways the world considers weak. He loves to work through the ways that the world considers silly and stupid or those who are considered inferior by the world's standards. The scriptures are full of examples of how God uses people and works in unexpected ways. All the judges are great examples. And then when we get to the kings, he raises up David, this little shepherd boy. And throughout the rest of the scriptures... He's using prostitutes and sinners. He uses Paul to write half, over half, the majority of the New Testament epistles who used to persecute the church. Why does he do this? 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31 says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He works in these ways so that we boast in the Lord, 
not in ourselves. Because once you have been, once you have made Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of your life, all of your boasts are to be in him. And we can actually rejoice in our weaknesses because we have been made so strong through Christ. And in this weakness, his glory shines even greater. So my question today, as we look at these, is where are you like Ehud or Othniel even? What are some of the things that you feel weak in? Where do you feel like, man, I don't measure up. I do not measure up to the standards that we place on one another. Maybe you don't think you have the right personality for God to use. Or the right skills. Or I'm too young. Or I'm too old. Or I'm not ready. Maybe your social status isn't as high as you'd like it to be. You don't make enough money. You're not as advanced in your career. I have good news for you that God will still use you for his glory and absolutely for your good. It's good to be weak and let God use you in that way. So all the eyes will be on him and not on us. Or maybe you're here today and you're like, I don't feel weak, but you're wallowing in some sin, chasing after idols like the Israelites, the idols in our culture of success, power, physical fulfillment, And when I say that, I mean everything in there. We use drugs and we use alcohol to numb ourselves from what the realities. We chase after sex and perfect health. You're chasing after something that you believe will make you feel right. Something that's going to fill me up and fill that void that I have inside of me that I can't quite understand why it's there. You need a deliverer. Or maybe you're here and you're like, man, I'm Othniel in this situation. (laughs) Nothing is wrong with me. I have arrived. As humans, we are so quick to believe that we are so powerful, invincible. College students, you're like, man, I'm going to go and I'm going to get a job and I'm going to be successful, and I may or may not get married and do the whole American dream, but it's going to happen. Young kids, you think you're invincible. I think I'm invincible sometimes. Go run a race, and that'll humble you. (laughs) And don't, yeah, don't do that. That'll hurt you. Um, We believe that we work all these things in our own strength, and as Americans, I mean, I think that this is particularly dangerous because we are taught, man, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, do it right, you're fine. But when we both zoom back, right, take a, big, take a look at the big picture of humanity, and when we also take a real sober look at our hearts, I think we realize we are not as good or as strong as we think we are. There is no way you can read world history and go, man, we really are getting it, people. There are just countless examples of the depravity that we have. I admit I have a Pinterest. It's great. <laughs> and I like, to, I like to look at cool things, and 
somehow, you know, I get off on some tangent of something and then it takes me into these like, like stuff that I'm just like, what in the world? Like this is on Pinterest and it goes into things like all of these sinful things and, and, and somehow I got onto this, uh, something about like racism and I was going down that and I was like, man, we are horrible to each other. We are not that strong. We need a deliverer. The amazing thing from our text today is that in all those examples I just ran through, God works both through Othniel and Ehud. It's easy to see Ehud's faults. Easy to see he needed help. But we know nothing negative about Othniel. But clearly, when you read in Scripture, it says, the Lord raised him up, and the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Even in all of his perfect human qualities, he still needed the Lord to bring him through. Because you know what? He might have been powerful, but he wasn't taking on the king of Mesopotamia. Nothing's happening without the Lord. Deliverance ultimately is not happening without the Lord. You cannot deliver yourself because all of us are weak and sinful and we struggle We have pain and we get sick. But the good news is this, that God has made a way through Jesus Christ. Adam and Eve, at the beginning of human existence, ushered in sin by being disobedient to God. And ever since that time, we've been fractured. You know some point in your life, you're like, man, this is not right. We've all been pained. We've rebelled against God like the Israelites. We go our own way. We do what's right in our own eyes. And eventually we have to come to terms with the fact that we can't do enough to be right. We need a deliverer. We need the capital D deliverer who is Jesus Christ. All of the judges point to him. To Jesus. Jesus who unlike Othniel was infinitely more right for the role of deliverer. Who unlike Ehud didn't need to use deception who unlike the next few judges we'll talk about, does not display any weakness at all. But like these folks, Jesus did come as an outsider. He came to the earth in the most unexpected, unlikely way as a baby. And he lived perfectly so you don't have to. And unlike the judges, and in the most counterintuitive way, he delivered his people not through a great triumph, but through a crushing and torturous defeat on the cross. And he rose again, and I promise you, when he comes back, you can count on the fact that at that point, in the full consummation of God's plan, he will come back as a conqueror in complete triumph. Amen? And all we have to do is see that God loves us so much, he would send his only son to come and deliver us from our sins. Believe that. Accept that. Repent of the idolatry and the sin that's in your life. Accept the free gift of salvation that comes through Christ. No matter if you're like Othniel or you're like Ehud or somewhere in between or beyond that spectrum. Seeing how God worked through these men and ultimately in the way that Jesus fulfilled all of these roles perfectly for us should bring us to the floor in humility. Whether you have all the world's goods and successes, 
or whether you have nothing. We are nothing without the grace of God. And I hope that everyone sees that you are in need of this deliverer. If you haven't put your faith in him, then I pray you do. If you're a Christian, then remember that we are like the Israelites. We forget and we forget and we forget. And all we have to do is place our trust in God, not in the things that promise deliverance. Daily remember that Christ came, he died, and trust in his finished work. He was raised again so that you might have life abundantly and joyfully in him. So we can be free to share the good news about him for his glory and our good. Now we get a chance to remember now what Christ did for us on the cross. We get to do this every week and this is a blessing. We take communion here to remember that Christ did deliver us and we live on the other side of that deliverance. This is not just a time where we walk up and say, oh, I'm going to just tear off the bread, dip it in the cup. This means something. Symbolically, the bread means Christ's body was given for you and his blood was shed for you. So here at Redeemer, we come, we'll have a station up, uh, up top, in the back, and up front. We come forward, we take a piece off and dip it in juice or wine. The wine is in the glasses marked with twine. You take that as your conscience leads you. But this is a time for believers in Christ to rejoice in this good news. And if you're here and you haven't taken the step of, of putting your faith in Jesus, you're like, man, I don't know what you're talking about, then take the time now to reflect and pray. There'll be pastors back here who want to talk to you. Uh, there's prayer responders in the back for anybody who needs it. Take advantage of that, you know. Um, that's a great opportunity to be able to get to pray, have someone pray over you, and, I, and, and, and we want you to come and uh, And bring those requests to us. So let's remember, as we come forward here, that this is a time to be joyful. Remember your sin, yes, but be joyful because God made a way. And if you just believe in him, you can be made so well and so complete. And he wants you to do that. So let's pray. Father God, we're thankful for this day, Lord. Uh, just for a time to come together, time to gather, time to worship you. We're thankful, God, that you use people like the judges, Othniel and Ehud, to bring glory to yourself, Lord. And I pray that in the midst of our daily lives, you would help us to not forget what you've done, but to remember the grace that you have provided for us through Jesus Christ, And I ask that as we continue to go through this book and it seems like there's just this downward spiral that you would help us to remember that we can very easily fall into that cyclical pattern, but we're so thankful. We live on this side of Christ and he has made a way. He has made a way for restoration, Lord, and I pray that you would help us to rest in that. As we go from here today, help us to love one another well, to love our neighbors well, and ultimately to glorify you and love you well. In all this we pray, in Jesus Christ's name, amen.